1: The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain Select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I like classic clothing that never goes out of style, and that's why I suggest you check out Quince, an online clothing store that focuses on timeless essentials at great prices. I recently bought a Mongolian cashmere sweater for under $100. It's a great sweater and a great deal. Now that warm weather is upon us, Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from 30 bucks, performance polos and versatile flow knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing practices along with premium fabrics and finishes. Upgrade your wardrobe, go to quince.com/milkstreet for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash Milk Street to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash Milk Street. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to stream our television show, get our recipes, or take our free online cooking classes. Enjoy the show. This is Milk Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball.
2: You know, people who don't know me very well who have actually witnessed me eat are become very shocked about this. I don't do this for sport. You know, I, I take this very seriously and at the, at the risk of harming my body in, in future decades to come.
1: Chef Edward Lee traveled to 16 cities to explore the underbelly of American food, and he ate a lot. Bad Chicken Kiev in Brighton Beach and Excellent Skeeter Dogs in West Virginia. By the way, his new book is called Buttermilk Graffiti. But first, I chat with Kim Severson of the New York Times about her article, Finding a Lost Strain of Rice and Clues to Slave Cooking. Kim Severson, how are you? Great. How are you, Chris? Great. Nice to have you back on the show. Uh This is a story about rice Uh, you wrote in the New York Times a while back, uh, a lost strain of rice, an upland rice. So let's just start. What is rice and and how is upland rice different than regular rice?
3: Well, there's the rice that grows that we sort of imagine in uh, that is very water intensive. And so it grows with um, flooding fields. The rice gets planted underwater. Uh, it grows, it gets harvested with people who are mucking around in water. So you have a kind of a rice that grows uh, in a very water-intensive way, which is the rice that much of the South was built on uh, in the Carolinas in particular. So you had this Carolina gold rice that was, you know, it was beautiful, sent to New York, sent all over. It, it, it was really quite lucrative for growers and Plantation uh, owners in the South, but there's also something called uplands rice, which is kind of a dry cultivation rice, uh, and it's um, the hull is a little thicker, and it's a it's a little it's 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 a different kind of a rice than what you would find from that that creamy Carolina Gold rice. So uplands rice is something essentially you could grow in your back garden patch if you wanted to without having to build a dike and flood it.
1: So there's obviously a cultural context here with the, the Gullah culture. Could you explain what that
3: is? So the Gullah Geechee culture were essentially uh, West African slaves who were brought over and settled in uh, the part of uh, South Carolina, North Carolina, and a little bit down into Florida on the coast. And the Gullah Geechee culture is, has very specific ties to places in West Africa. And particularly after uh, malaria and uh, a number of other diseases and also economic and political forces uh, had slave owners abandoning some of the sea islands on uh, on the coast of, of Southeast America. A lot of the African slaves were left there by themselves, essentially, and so they kept their culture very intact and they survived. And the Gullah Geechee culture is sort of the last intact, very pure link to African culture in America. In fact, back in the day, being called a Geechee was considered um, kind of a slur, particularly among uh, African Americans who were from the city. And it's kind of a way to say that folks were kind of country if they were a Geechee. And so there's been a big reclamation of that term and of that culture as of late.
1: So why were people looking for this rice, which no longer existed as far as anyone knew anywhere in the world?
3: Well, for a long time, uh, the question of whether or not Africans uh, brought rice with them and their skills at rice growing when they were enslaved and, and uh, brought to America was a, was a question among historians. Certainly there was a line of thinking that the people who were selected to be slaves and captured were selected for their rice growing knowledge and brought to America uh, and, and used for that purpose. So finding rice that actually came from Africa became a great A great quest for a lot of people. And um, Judith Carney, who was a a great rice historian from University of California, uh, made this discovery of rice in Suriname, which is a South American country. And she found a group of people descended from escaped slaves who had gone up into the mountains. And she found this particular kind of rice and these kinds of uh, cooking methods that linked it directly to West Africa. So that Suriname discovery was kind of considered the the gold standard that actually did prove that Africans had agency in, in this particular kind of rice economy. And then through uh, almost a serendipitous meeting, some rice scholars discovered this other uh, strain of rice growing in Trinidad, which is what I stumbled onto and, and discovered this great detective tale.
1: So let's talk about how the rice got from uh, the Carolina coast to uh, Trinidad, and that has something to do with the War of 1812, I believe, right?
3: Yes, you know your history, sir. Uh, So (laughs) in the War of 1812, the Brits went to uh, some of the enslaved Africans and said, here's the deal. If you come fight against the Americans, against the people who are essentially your oppressors, we will give you some land and some freedom. So a group of people from uh, South Georgia agreed uh, that happened and then they were taken to Trinidad and uh, given a certain section of land. Now uh, the Brits at that time had a lot of undeveloped parts of Trinidad and so the place that they put them in the hill country and I think the idea was that they would help develop this. So they took some of this uplands rice and they started growing it. And this group of people are called Maricans, and it is derivative of the the word America, the Americans. So they're American starting with an M. So
1: this rice was actually genetically tested, and it turns out it was in West Africa, but originally it was a japonica rice, right?
3: Correct. So there was a bit of a, a lot of excitement when they first discovered this rice because they thought it was perhaps a direct genetic link to the rice that's grown in West Africa and a lot of excitement around it among historians. And they sent some up to be tested at uh, New York University um, to do some genetic testing on it. And of course, you know, the truth is so limiting sometimes. Uh, it turns out that it, it was not this rice that came directly from Africa, but kind of made its way to Africa from Asian countries. And so it wasn't this African crop. It was, in fact, uh, the japonica rice, which not, is not necessarily a terrible thing that it wasn't this indigenous African glabarima rice is, is the name of it. But this japonica rice that went from Southeast Asia to West Africa in probably somewhere the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries uh, still was brought over from Africa by folks who were enslaved. But um, it was not exactly what they thought it was.
1: Michael Twitty, the author of The Cooking Chain, wrote about the rice, quote, It's another living artifact that automatically wipes out any nonsense about the earliest years of African-American food. Uh, What do they mean by that?
3: Well, again, it's that idea that slaves were essentially dumb labor who came over and that, that Africans somehow had less intelligence or less ability and they were just captured like cattle, brought over, yoked up and sent to work. And for a long time, the struggle has been uh, to show that uh, Africans had a lot of agency in their lives and in the kinds of culture they tried to create when they were enslaved and brought over here. And I think there's been uh, academic and social discussion around, I mean, you know, for obviously, how, how do you enslave people and keep them down? You convince everybody else that these people are less than. And uh-huh. once we start to discover the food ways and food cultures and the ways that, Africans kept their culture alive through food during these long period of enslavement, uh, you start to see the power of that culture. And I think that's what he's trying to get at. So it's this idea of, of agency, of uh, Africans having agency in their own lives once they were enslaved. And I think that's what he tries to do in his work as well.
1: You talk about a couple recipes I thought was interesting. Um, my mother actually grew up around Washington and used to make Hop and John mm-hmm. on New Year's Day, which is rice with black-eyed peas or peas. Uh, but there was, you talked about Limpin' Susan, or someone did in that story, uh, which is right, stir, right. stir-fried rice with okra. So I'd never heard of Limpin' Susan as a counterpoint yeah, to Hoppin' John. Yeah, that was really
3: interesting, which yeah. is, uh, they say either the, the sister or wife of of Hoppin' John, it's, it's kind of a drier application. Hoppin' John tends to be a little bit wetter, uh, and that Limpin' Susan is just a little bit closer to the way that the Americans in Trinidad cook this this rice, um, which is often um, cooked with uh, coconut milk and is a little drier and starchier. Uh, and then they take a kind of a chutney from benny seeds or sesame seeds, so they take a chutney that's made with uh, what they call parched benny seeds or essentially toasted benny seeds, and then often something, um, an herb called shadow benny, which is uh, a little bit like cilantro, and sprinkle this chutney on top of the uh, kind of starchy, dry um, dry rice.
1: Why do I have a feeling three years from now I'll have to stay in a line at Whole Foods to buy Shadow Benny?
3: You will, sir.
1: <laughs> Kim Saverson, fabulous story about a lost rice found in Trinidad and South America and part of the Gullah culture. Thank you. Uh,
3: it's always a pleasure. You're welcome, Chris.
1: That was Kim Severson, national food correspondent at the New York Times. Her article is called Finding a Lost Strain of Rice and Clues to Slave Cooking. You can subscribe and listen to Mill Street Radio anytime as a podcast. New shows are available every Friday on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and Spotify. Just subscribe and get all of our shows downloaded right to your phone or tablet. Right now, my co host Sarah Moult and I will be taking your call. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on Public Television, also author of the book Home Cooking 101. Sarah, how are you?
4: I'm great, Chris, and I think it's time to get to the phones.
1: Open up the lines. Let's go.
4: Welcome to Milk Street. Who do we have on the line?
5: Hi, this is Carolyn. I'm from Warwick, Rhode Island.
4: Oh, hi, Carolyn from Warwick. How can we help you today?
5: I did have a quick one about your quick cinnamon buns. Okay. I made them, and I put them in a little plastic bag, the whole nine-inch pan, not baked, and I froze them (gasps) because I have an event coming up this weekend that I'm baking a lot of things that my mom used to uh, make. And cinnamon buns was something I used to make with yeast. And uh, I did a quickie so that my kids would have this cinnamon buns. Now, will they bake okay when I take them out and fill them?
4: Let me ask Chris his opinion here. Um, Chris, this is a cream biscuit dough, a la James, James Beard. Beard. Yeah. And you roll it out yeah. and put the filling in right. and then roll it up and cut it and put it in. So we've got it's probably just baking powder. I don't think baking soda, because I don't think there's any acid in Right, that. It was. <laughs> and so I think it will still rise, don't you?
5: I was wondering if it's like a scone. You can squeeze scones in biscuits. I and guess so. I mean, like Yeah, I, mean, I think you uh, can.
1: Baking powder is double-acting, which means it acts in the presence of moisture on the first stage and in the presence of heat over 120 degrees on the second stage. So you might not get as much lift but, but I think it still
4: works. So I have to make another batch and I didn't know whether to do the same thing. You know, I've gotten frozen biscuits from my favorite place in um Charleston, Callie's biscuits. I don't know if you've ever had mm-hmm. them. And they're raw mm. and they puff up beautifully, yeah. so I think it's going to oh. work.
1: The only thing is, you might next time double the put a little more baking, baking powder, powder in, or one and a half, because oh. we yeah. know
4: baking powder adds that taste yeah. that you sort of don't want to be too overwhelming. But I'd love it if you got back to us and let us know how it went.
5: Yeah, because I'm I have to make a lot of things and I freeze a lot before I bake it. That way, it's fresh.
4: Yeah, no, no, when I, I love, love that. Go to serve. Yeah.
5: Wow. Well, it was nice and sticky on the bottom. Yeah. Um, all that yummy, but honey and but the I've got to tell you something. Don't ever leave the pan on the stove when you're doing that.
4: Oh, dear. (laughs) And
5: walk away. Oh, dear. No, no, of course not. No, this could uh, be a problem. I did. I know it was So I had to make the sticky all over again, and the house was full of smoke. But other than that. (laughs) At least you
4: don't live in New York City where the alarm would have gone off.
1: Right. And yet nobody (laughs) would have cared.
4: Yeah, not in Warwick. Um, Carolyn, thank you so
1: much for calling. Okay. You're
5: welcome. Take
1: care. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. If you have a cooking failure or a question, give us a call anytime. Our number is 855 426 9843. That's 855 426 9843. Or please send us an email anytime at questions at milkstreetradio.com.
4: Hello, welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
6: This is Mark Gatza, and I'm calling from Bel Air, Maryland, in the uh, upper corner of the state.
4: How can we help you?
6: I have some questions about vinegar. I use a lot of vinegar, I make pickles, I make uh, hot and sour soup and gazpacho, and I have about maybe 10 different kinds. I went to get a bottle of cider vinegar for barbecue season and discovered that all the shelves had changed in the supermarket. Where I used to find the cider vinegar, there was now cider vinegar with mother. (laughs) I know that mother is what they use to make vinegar, but I'm wondering why that's now at eye level and everything else has been displaced. And I'm wondering what I can do with the mother in the vinegar.
4: I'm going to defer to Chris because he actually makes vinegar from scratch. Chris? Well,
1: you can make vinegar by buying Bragg's apple cider vinegar, which is unpasteurized, I believe. I have seen that, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> you can use that, like six parts wine, one part Bragg's, throw it in a crock with some cheesecloth on it and let it sit for about a month and then keep filling it up as it evaporates. And that will turn into vinegar, which I've done. It's the easiest recipe in the world. And I have a huge crock of vinegar. So Bragg's unprocessed, the unpasteurized vinegar is...
4: Unfiltered, unprocessed. Yes. The idea being that it has the natural bacteria in it. Let's say what the mother is. It's that cellulose layer that forms when that whole process is going on and it floats in the... Vinegar. You get a
1: little bit on top, yeah.
4: I think there's a perception that it's like kombucha, you know, all those fermented foods, that fermented foods are good for you.
6: Right. I did look that up and I saw some lists of the benefits of having a little bit of uh, vinegar with mother every day. I'm thinking a glass of red wine probably does the same thing, but that would be my (laughs) opinion.
1: I'm with you. Uh, I vote for the red wine. wine.
6: We're the red
4: wine team over here. We're right there with you.
6: Exactly. Now, the next question is. I learned from you all about pomegranate molasses, yep. and I love that flavor, and I use it a lot. And I'm wondering, is it possible to take the mother from you know, a cider vinegar and somehow mix it up with the molasses to make uh, pomegranate vinegar itself?
4: I wonder why you wouldn't just take fresh pomegranate juice, because you can turn any sweet beverage into a vinegar by adding a mother or a starter. And you can order starters from wine companies too because they'll give you a starter just like, you know, you use for wine, you use for vinegar. But I would take fresh pomegranate juice because pomegranate molasses is already so reduced and so thick. I would start with the fresh juice and get a starter or maybe even add a little bit of Braggs. Okay. Or
1: just suck down the pomegranate molasses, which is like my favorite <laughs> thing in the world. Did I just ask a question? So how do you use pomegranate molasses at home?
6: Oh, I throw a little in whenever I make an Asian sauce. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also do a lot of Middle Eastern sauces for kebabs and things like yep. that. I have thrown it into vinaigrettes. We make all yes, of our own I do that salad too. dressings. Yeah.
1: A little bit at the end of a meat stew, mm-hmm. like a capful, makes a big difference, too. You know,
4: it's a nice double whammy. It's both sweet and tangy, sort of like tamarind.
1: Yeah, it's very much like tamarind. It's a little sweeter.
4: Very like nice tamarind. ingredient. Good for you. Well, you're a serious yeah. cook.
6: Wow. Well, great. 35 years in my household, I have been in charge of the kitchen. And the good thing is that when you're in charge of the kitchen, you always get what you want for dinner.
4: Good point. I like that. Thank you for
1: calling. Thank you. Great pleasure. Thank
6: you. I appreciate yeah. it. Bye-bye.
1: Thanks. Bye-bye. If you're listening to Mostly Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Coming up next, my conversation with Edward Lee, author of the book Buttermilk Graffiti. We'll be right back.
7: This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to slash locator to find Allagash White near you.
4: For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine.
1: This is Most Young Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Edward Lee is a chef, a traveler, and an accomplished writer. For two years, Lee traveled across America looking for overlooked pockets of immigrant cooking and the people who cooked it. He published his stories and recipes in his new book, Buttermilk Graffiti, A Chef's Journey to Discover America's New Melting Pot Cuisine. Let's start with a quote from your book. Authenticity is a word I rarely use and one I never give credence to. Tradition, though, is used to describe nostalgia. It is a sister to authenticity and yet wholly different. Uh, What did you mean by that?
2: So I, I, you know, I, I go on a rant a lot about um, when people call things authentic. And, and to me, the word authentic is really just one person's truth versus another. And there is only one authenticity, right? When we say something's authentic, it, it usually means there's only one answer. But traditions are endless. Traditions are, are, you know, go on forever. And, and there can be multiple traditions. And I truly believe that when we talk about food, um, that's we're talking about traditions. When we talk about something being authentic, we're talking about it really meaning that there's a tradition behind it that touches your heart or touches your nostalgia. But there's no one real recipe, there's no one truth to any uh, uh, cuisine. Um, I think there's infinite uh, varieties of tradition.
1: So we, we, you should describe the concept of the book. You travel around the country looking for what?
2: I traveled around the country looking for my definition, And, and I say my definition because it's a very personal journey. But it's my definition of what American food is in this time that we live in right now. And that food is colored by immigrants, both new and people who have been here for generations and centuries. And that ongoing saga of people who come to this country and try to preserve something that they had from the motherland, uh, some culinary tradition that they had the same time trying to sort of find their identity in this new foreign place that they're in. Um, So, okay, so you go in
1: these restaurants. One of the things I noticed is your ability to eat. As you say, (laughs) you get your head down, you sweat, and you don't look up for an hour. You just eat. But you might go through 10 or 15 items on a menu. You are a prodigious eater, unless you just take tiny bites.
2: I I do both. I, I am a prodigious eater, but there are some things that obviously I can't finish the whole plate. But, you know, people who don't know me very well, who have actually witnessed me eat, um, (laughs) become very shocked about this. I don't do this for sport, you know, and I make jest of it, but I'm really absorbing information. And to me, sometimes, like, you eat it, like, take, for example, this, this Cambodian dish with the fish and the turmeric and the coconut milk and the ginger. I could take two bites and let it go and just record the flavors. But a dish like that, it kind of changes in your mouth. It's almost like the first few bites are, your, your mouth just gets acclimated, you know, towards these really aggressive flavors. And really, you know, eight bites into it, it it's kind of a different dish than it was And after two bites
1: let's talk about some of the people and places you people you met and places you went norman van Aken, i met him a long time ago i think you were in florida is that correct when you Mm -hmm. met him yes um and you said that he coined the term fusion uh back in the 80s so you want to tell that story
2: yeah so it's it's funny so because of you know, the cuisine that I cook, which is kind of a blend of Southern and and Asian food. You know, I've been surrounded both professionally and personally by this word fusion my whole life. And I've always hated the word. I've always felt like um, the word didn't really have a place because if we're talking about two things culturally that combine to come up with a third thing, well, all food is fusion, right? And everything that we do is a combination of different cultural influences. And so I, I kind of went back and studied the word and figured out where it came from. And and, and like most things, you know, it was sort of a misrepresentation of what Norman Van Aken was talking about. And his fusion that he was talking about was really not two different ethnicities, but it was the fusion of high cuisine and low cuisine. And by that he meant, you know, this idea of of the the French brigade system and fusing that with the flavors and spices and cooking techniques of you know the the immigrants of Miami during the day when he was cooking, which was mostly Cuban and you know West African, um, Caribbean uh, food, and so that to me, when I discovered that, what he was truly getting at, it was like a revelation. And back when I was a you know a young chef, you know there weren't there weren't a lot of people doing that.
1: Uh, you write about the West Virginia hot dog, sometimes referred to as skeeters. So this is chili. Uh, on a hot dog among other things. Yes. The structure of the chili is critical because if it's too tight It doesn't collapse in your mouth with the other ingredients too loose and the chili dog falls apart Really? I mean, is it really <laughs> that specific? I mean, or is, are you overriding here? I, <laughs> I mean, might come be on. It's but a chili dog. It,
2: it is true because chili can can be a very, you know, it can be almost a, a, a paste-like structure right. uh, which doesn't work, but it can also be soup
1: um, so, and then you also ran across pepperoni rolls, which I guess were often used by miners for lunch, right?
2: Yeah, it's, um, and it, it's interesting. I just ran into someone recently who had not read the book, um, but is from Appalachia. And she said uh, she said, "Why'd you write about the pepperoni roll? It's disgusting." And, and, and I said, "You know, I think the pepperoni roll is, is a really pure example of, of this very utilitarian food. It's very bland. It's, there's nothing spectacular about it. But not every meal has to be this explosion of flavor that's going to rock our world. Like sometimes food can just be pleasant and utilitarian and nostalgic. And didn't you buy a bunch of them and kept giving them out to people? Yes, I did. So Edward did.
1: Lee, right? Because I didn't want to eat them all. Nice to meet you. Here's an extra pepperoni roll. Um, so let's talk about the talk. The talk is when you sat down with your dad and said you wanted to be a cook. How did that go?
2: Oh, yeah, yeah. That that didn't go over very well. Um, uh, you know, I I am of a certain generation. You know, I'm in my mid-40s. And, and I find that every chef that I know that's around my age or older, I always ask them, what happened when you told your parents you wanted to be a chef? And, and most chefs, they all have a very similar reaction, which is, you know, pretty much aghast, you know, someone sighing, someone you know slapping their forehead and saying oh man you know like it, it wasn't it wasn't a popular career choice you know in those days and and um, my father particularly you, you know we were immigrants right i i was the first born son in america i was supposed to be the you know the one that becomes the lawyer or the accountant and you know or a doctor and, and sort of you know has a quote unquote respectable job and and here i go becoming a chef and I remember my dad saying to me, um, "You know, we didn't bring you to this country so you could be a servant. You know, we brought you here so you could succeed." Um, and and now, granted, he there 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 were no such things as celebrity chefs in Korea. So to him, the idea of being a chef was was just being a subservient cook, um, which also he was right because I spent many years just being, being a, a subservient, subservient cook, cook yeah. <laughs> and I still am. Um, but also, you know, there was something about the the this. Profession that I just knew I was going to do.
1: Uh, so you also mentioned something historically that after the Korean War, it was a very difficult time, and you you say people didn't want to talk about or remember how families were pitted against each other for what little there was to be had. So it's a it's a very difficult period in history back then. You want to just quickly elaborate
6: on that?
2: Yeah, um, you know it's interesting with, with with Koreans. You know it's part of. This writing of this book, and the idea of authenticity, the idea of truth, the idea of sort of unmasking uh, um, f- cultural truths about different cuisines, there's a lot of things that, that, that are misperceived about food, about cultures. Um, you know, Koreans are always um, you know, depicted as being very gritty, hardworking, uh, very you know nose to the bone, work all day, and, and, and they're very feisty and, and, and cutthroat. And, and I guess we are, as a people, part of it is, is when, when you sort of have an entire generation that grows out of a war and has to bring up a family with very, very limited supplies guess what you as, a, as an entire as a people's you will become cutthroat and gritty and and, and you know hardworking and, and, and uh, it, it, it's something that is still a remnant of the Korean War It's something that I, I saw in my parents it's something that I see in myself it, it, both good and bad also I think you can see it in the food it's hard to describe the food of a nation without also talking about sort of the politics and the war and the economics and everything else that happens to a people.
6: Um,
1: So you find that odd places like Patterson, New Jersey, has the largest concentration of Peruvian restaurants in the country, for example. Uh, How did that come to be and, and what did you find when you went there?
2: You know, Peruvian food is something that I am admittedly, I know very little about, and I knew even less uh, when I was researching the chapter. Um, and I went there thinking I would find something of, of you know, Peruvian food. And, and I wound up finding this incredible, almost forgotten city that is, you know, if you live in New York City, if you live in Manhattan, it's on a good day without traffic. It's a 20-minute ride. Um, and, and this historic city that's had so many layers of immigration, so many generations of, of turnover, and, and this being the latest incarnation of it. Um, you, you talk, actually, there's another great quote, uh, you,
1: and this is a recurring theme in your book. You have someone who emigrated from Peru when he was young. He's now cooking. Yes. And you say, quote, in an odd twist of history, the Lima of Ricardo's youth now lives here in Patterson, in other words, what he's cooking is the cooking of 30 or 40 years ago in his hometown. Mm-hmm. And Lima's moved on, of course. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he hasn't because he's nostalgic for that food, which gets back to the issue of, you know, how do you define authentic, right?
2: Right. Some, someone asked me the other day, you know, what's, what's the book about? And I said, it's a romance book. You yeah. Know, it should be in the romance category. And, and because really, to me, like, isn't all of food nostalgia? And, and what I find fascinating is that those romantic notions of what flavor is, when you look at the, the landscape of immigrant culture and food in America, it comes from a hundred different cultures, a hundred different con- countries, and they all land here, and they all kind of rub up against each other. And then some kind of uh, start to like blend, and some kind of influence each other, and some kind of make changes and adjustments. And lo and behold, what you have is this beautiful mix of flavors and aromas and and none of it is authentic none of it is authentic to the food that was cooked in the homeland
1: uh you love cafe du monde in new orleans you love the beignet but um you said there was a cousin to the beignet uh, c-a-l-a-s what, what is that
2: it's a it's a it's a similar fried dough but made with rice flour and it's called cala Um, versus the the refined wheat flour that obviously we use with beignets. Um, And the origins come from West Africa. Um, But that, you know, once refined flour was introduced and it became popular, you know, the the rice flour version just kind of disappeared. And and did you get it there, or where did you taste it? There are some historic cookbooks that have recipes for it, and I've made them myself. But it's an interesting thing that recipes like dinosaurs can go extinct. Jack Brady,
1: um, you ran into this boxer from Lowell, Massachusetts, right? Is that correct? Yes, yes. And you say his finger retains the muscle memory of violence, um, which I like. So how did you run into this guy? What was he like?
2: So I went to Lowell to study. um, I was doing a story on on Cambodian food. And and I met um, this wonderful Cambodian chef, and we're eating and talking. And one afternoon, I drive by Romalo's West End Gym. Um, and it had a huge, you know, Irish flag, and of course, I've, you know, a Lowell is the the history of of Irish immigration is so important in Lowell, so I I walk in there, and and I talk to a couple of trainers, and they said, uh, listen, if you want, if you really want some great stories about Lowell, you got to talk to this guy, Irish Jack Brady, and you'll find him at this bar, so I go to this bar, and uh, he's not there, and I give him my number, and they say, he, Jack Brady doesn't use telephones. So if you want to talk to him, you have to come back. And I said, fine. So I come back later, and uh, I find him at the bar, and um, you know next thing you know, i I'm we're drinking Irish whiskey and talking till two in the morning, and he's just telling me about, you know, the history of, Irish immigration and the history of Lowell and story after story about growing up in the in, in sort of the ghettos of Lowell with with the poor Irish who are just you know struggling and and, and scraping to get ahead and it reminded me so much right of, of what my family did or what the new immigrants are doing and, and and this passing of the torch right between the older immigration and and the newer immigrants who come in and, and, and they do the exact same thing it's just a different time, a different generation, different jobs. But they do. They come in and they do all the jobs that no one wants to do. And, and it was in that moment, this foggy haze at 2 in the morning, that I realized that I can't write about the, the Cambodian chef in Lowell and not talk about the Irish boxer because they're linked. They're linked together. Even though the Irish boxer will probably not go to the Cambodian restaurant and the Cambodian chef is not going to go drinking in the Irish bar, but they're linked to, you know, in, in, in some odd way.
1: Edward Lee, it's been an enormous pleasure. Uh, Your book is fabulous, Buttermilk Graffiti. Extremely well-written, fascinating stories.
2: And I wish you the best of luck. Thanks so much. Thank you. And I've been reading and following you for so many years, so it's been a real pleasure to talk to you.
1: That was Chef Edward Lee. His new book is called Buttermilk Graffiti, a chef's journey to discover America's new melting pot cuisine. You know, Edward Lee has resolved a literary question that lingers in the food world. Is food writing its own discipline, or is it just writing? You know, many food writers throw around adjectives like M&M's, basil-flecked, herbaceous, delectable, and zesty. But Edward Lee treats food writing like what it is, writing. Here he describes the first taste of lamb broth. It is the taste of a wet forest. It is a flavor that starts in the nostrils and slides down like heavy rain. Take that, Ernest Hemingway. Right now, I'm heading into the kitchen at Milk Street to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe, Escalivada. Lynn, how are you? I'm great, Chris. So vegetables on the grill are always an afterthought, except in Spain, where they have a history and tradition of cooking vegetables actually on the coals because they want to get some nice char on the outside and a lot of smoky flavor. So let's take that concept of getting smoky, almost charred vegetables on the outside off of a backyard barbecue grill.
9: Right. So usually when we cook vegetables, especially on the grill, we kind of treat them very delicately. What we're going to do here is sort of flip the script on them and treat them like the meat. We would also probably be grilling at the same time that we're cooking the vegetables. So we're going to create a two-level grill. One side is going to be very hot. It's going to be over high heat. The other side is going to be off. That's going to allow us to get a lot of char on the vegetables, but then move them to the cooler side of the grill so they can fully cook through and get nice and tender. That's how we cook a steak, and so we're going to do the same thing with our
1: vegetables. And what vegetables are we using?
9: So we're using eggplant, and you want to use Japanese eggplant here. They typically use a globe eggplant, but we found a Japanese eggplant is smaller, so it's going to cook faster, thinner skin, so you don't have to peel it, less prep. Red bell pepper, onion two ways, red onion cut into wedges and scallions. Those all get tossed with olive oil, Uh, sweet or hot paprika and salt and pepper that sits while the grill is heating, so it gets some nice flavor on it. And the big thing here is you don't want to be worried about getting too dark. You really want that char on the vegetables, nice smoky, smoky flavor. They come off the heat. We chop them up into bite-sized pieces. While we love that char, it did need a little bit of balance, so we added some cherry tomatoes, sherry vinegar, garlic, and honey. So we balance that out with a little bit of sweetness and acidity, and it really goes nicely with a lot of that smoky char we got off the vegetables.
1: So I can burn my vegetables and I'm doing it right. Exactly. This is the perfect recipe for me. Thank you, Lynn. This is a great way to grill your vegetables in the summer. This is Escalavada, which comes from Spain, of course, which is smoky grilled vegetables. Thank you.
9: You're welcome. You can get this recipe at 177milkstreet.com.
1: I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, more of your culinary questions and dilemmas, my co host, Sarah Moulton. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand a hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Now it's time to hear from our listeners uh, with my co-host, Sarah Malton, Sarah, are you ready to go?
4: I am ready to take those questions.
1: Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
9: This is Rebecca from Merced, California. How are you? I'm great. How are you?
1: Good. How can we help you?
9: So I am a big fan of making ice cream from scratch. And I don't know if you've had a lot of Ben and Jerry's ice cream, but... He's from Vermont,
4: remember, or partially from yes. Vermont, yeah.
9: Yeah, yeah, no, I figured. Um, they do some kind of ice creams where it's like a cookie dough swirl, or one of my favorites is like a cinnamon bun kind of swirl. And I was trying to recreate that, but because it's a dough, I wasn't sure how to convert that into a swirl.
4: Well, I think one of the things is you don't want it to freeze hard. You want it to stay soft,
1: right? Well, you you want mm-hmm. to take the eggs out. Yeah. Because you're going to have uncooked eggs. So definitely drop the eggs in the cookie recipe. Okay, and I 11er. tried doing
9: like an edible cookie dough and in the fridge I just left it, you know, just as a kind of make a head kind of thing and it was just completely hard in the fridge. So I didn't know how to do that.
4: You know, a lot of times what people add to uh, soften is like a syrup, like corn syrup or golden syrup. Um, oh, there which, we go. Which keeps things soft. And Chris is right also, lose the eggs.
1: Well, you know, there's a book. Is it out yet or it's coming out Brave Tart? Oh, it's out. It's out. It's a
4: really fun I book. I just
1: interviewed her a couple of weeks ago, and she's got terrific recipes. But I think she has an ice cream with a cookie dough in it, so you might want to check that out. And yeah. her, her stuff's pretty good.
4: That's a book worth getting anyway, I think. And that's on. She she's <laughs> the
1: resident baker at uh, Serious Eats.
4: And she's sort of the answer girl yeah. when it comes to science about so baking.
1: I would go online to Serious Eats and see if they have that recipe, or I would actually ask her that question.
4: Yeah, or okay, go to your library. Okay, Brave Tart?
1: But yeah, break tart. tart. Yeah. And also corn syrup does okay. sound like the right answer yeah. to me. Yeah,
4: because right. that would keep it soft. But which there's is what a lot she's
1: also really into the chemistry and science of yeah. baking. And she'd be a good person to ask.
4: Okay. All, All right. right. Sounds good. Thanks, All right. Rebecca. Thanks, Rebecca. Have a good one. You too. Bye.
1: You're listening to Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Give us a call anytime with your questions at 855-426-9843. One more time. Eight five five four two six nine eight four three. Or send us an email at questions. At milkstreetradio.com.
4: Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
6: This is Simon from McLean, Virginia.
4: Hi, Simon. How can we help you today?
6: Sure. Um, I was rummaging through the basement and I found probably an old Mother's Day gift of tagine. I was curious how braising a tagine differs from braising it in, say, an enameled Dutch oven. Is this a case of just the vessel that was devised? in that region or is it designed to perform and deliver different results than than the western dutch oven.
1: Excellent question. Yeah. There're two things. It's, you know, it's terracotta, it's pottery. And so my guess is the heat level as you cook with it is probably going to be moderate, low to moderate. So it's probably lower cooking than what you'll do on top of the stove. And then the theory is that the steam collects at the top and then it condenses and drips down. And the drips side. down. But that has absolutely nothing to do with what's going on inside the chicken or the lamb or anything else because exterior liquid doesn't flow into the meat. The juiciness is dependent upon the internal temperature. So to make a long story short, no. You can cook in a Dutch oven just fine. Don't do it on top of the stove. Do it in a very low oven. And I do it all the time. And uh, you'll get, I think, the same results. I've cooked with a tagine too, which I love. A lot of people love cooking with terracotta, which I think is a gentler way of cooking. But you can mimic that in a low oven, I think.
4: Yeah, so you're saying if you did use a Dutch oven, don't do it on top of the stove, do it in the oven?
1: Yeah, the top of the stove is a problem because the heat's One coming from the bottom. Yeah. It's not even. And it's very hard to adjust most stovetops to a very low setting. For years, I've had a stovetop, which I love, except when I get to a low simmer, it sort of goes out. I, I, I can't get yeah. it low enough. You know? yeah. So a low oven is the way to go. So no, you don't need a tasheen.
4: But since since he has one, he might as well use it.
1: It's lovely, and I've been in Morocco and cooked with a chef using tagine. It's delicious, but I think it's just because it's very very moderate heat.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Consistent. And the
1: design I don't think really has anything to do with the interior of the meat itself. But you, but, you
4: do end up with a nice bunch of juice when you're done. Yeah.
1: But you would in sauce. A Dutch oven. You
4: would. Too. Yeah.
1: The one thing I did learn about tagines though is that in Morocco, they don't really sauté anything to start. They might cook the onions for three or four minutes in some oil, but then they add, let's say, the chicken and the preserved lemon and the olives and the ginger, et cetera. And so when they're done, a couple hours later, every single ingredient is still there. It's not melting pot. Everything retains its original flavor. And I think that's the secret of a good tagine is you still taste every single ingredient that went in, unlike a beef bourguignon, which is all umami. One, yeah. Right, and that's right. why they're so delicious. And that's very low heat... And, and making sure each of those ingredients doesn't get turned into one flavor.
6: So if you were to use it, you would use it on the stovetop?
1: Yeah, it, it's designed to be used on right. the stovetop, but I just use very low heat. And the terracotta will also ameliorate the heat, too. Oh, it like distribute metal. better than... Distribute better. Than... It'll take more time to heat up. but It'll be very gentle, which is good.
4: Which is good, Yeah. yeah.
1: Nice. So I would use it. Go ahead and use it.
6: Okay, thank you.
1: All yeah, right. Thanks for calling. Thank you. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. If you have a cooking failure or a question, give us a call at any time. Our number is 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or please send us an email anytime at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Right now, it's time for this week's Milk Street Basics. Sometimes you need a pan on the grill to contain vegetables that might otherwise fall through grill grates, or to make quick sauces, or even to hold resting steaks, chops, or chicken parts. The easy solution is cheap pie plates, which are large and flat enough to hold a fair amount and have just enough of a lip to contain liquids. So our suggestion is to buy a pair of cheap metal 9-inch plates. By the way, make sure they're not non-stick. The coating will burn off on the grill. And don't use them for making pie afterwards unless you're looking to add a smoky flavor to your crust. For more information, please go to MilkStreetRadio.com. So what's the difference between kosher salt and table salt? J. Kenji Lopez-Alt is here to answer. Kenji, how are you? I'm doing good. How are you? So uh, what are we talking about today?
8: I think we're talking about salt. Okay. Okay. Our recipes on Serious Eats and in my book, and I think probably in Milk Street too, often call for kosher salt. In fact, they almost exclusively call for kosher salt. And so people ask, why do I need kosher salt? Or when when should I use table salt? When should I use kosher? When should I use one of these fancy sea salts? So that's the real question. Why do recipes call for kosher salt? The main thing to know, first of all, is that Almost all the salt you're going to buy at the supermarket is pretty much chemically identical, whether it's table salts or kosher salt or even one of those fancy sea salts. They're 99.999% sodium, sodium chloride. Right. Um, table salt often has iodine added to it. Um, it's because in the 20s, people used to get goiter from a lack of iodine. Um, that's not really a problem these days, um, at least in, in most of the U.S. Um, kosher salt is pretty much pure sodium chloride, and most sea salts are sodium chloride mixed with sort of trace mineral elements that will— slightly affect the flavor but mostly just affect the way they look
1: now i talked to a quote-unquote salt Mm -hmm. expert spice expert he said gray sea salt is the one kind of salt that actually does have more flavor do you agree with that or not
8: I mean, to a very finely tuned palate, um, perhaps. I think most people are not really going to notice a flavor difference, though. The real difference you're going to notice in those types of salts is the texture. Right. Um, and, you know, and that that's why chefs use sort of those fancy sea salts, um, because depending on how the salt crystals were formed, um, you know, whether whether they were harvested from the top of a salt pond or whether they condense and, and form clumps on the bottom or whether they're pulled out of a mine, um, the, the, the way in which the salt crystals are formed can produce different shapes. So, like, Malden sea salt from England has these nice sort of right. flakes. Pyramids, fleur de sel, the Gracie salt from France forms these sort of moist clumps, and so so really the reason you use those salts is is for texture because they don't sort of melt as quickly as other salts. Um, so you get these kind of bursts of salinity. So,
1: so this means really using a coarse salt on top of food before you serve it. Exactly. So you would never put it into a stew or a soup or pasta water. No, yeah, I mean water.
8: doing that. I mean you're basically that's basically like. You know replacing your toilet paper with dollar bills like it, it doesn't really make it, it doesn't really make you're just <laughs> what flushing a great it. analogy thank you i'll think
1: about you're that just one. kind
8: of flushing it down the toilet at that, the, the, all the good qualities down the toilet at that point um so, yeah, so the question really then is why kosher salt versus table salt? And there's a few things to consider. Um, one of them is uh, relative density. Kosher salt doesn't pack as easily. So fine table salt is is very small cubes. It's essentially, if you look at it under a microscope, or even with your naked eye, you can almost see it, that they're almost perfect cubes. Um, they stack very easily. They pack very nicely into containers. Um, and so they end up being quite dense, whereas kosher salts are sort of these jagged flakes. Um, so it's sort of like if you have a um, an aquarium... You know, and you fill it up with uh, halfway with small bits of gravel, you're going to pack in a lot more rock there than if you just put a single large stone in there and you can't really fit anything else. There's a lot more empty space there. So kosher salt tends to be less dense than table salt, which means that if a recipe calls for table salt, volume-wise, you're going to use more, more Except, kosher salt.
1: we've actually tested this, and diamond crystal kosher salt is about one and a half times in volume. So, right. so in other words, you'd have to use for a teaspoon of, of table salt, you need one and a half to two teaspoons of
8: diamond crystal. Right.
1: But Morton's kosher salt is just slightly more than table salt. Right. So it right. depends on brand. It right? does,
8: which is, which is why you kind of have to stick to a brand. And which is why, you know, in, in recipes, I often call for diamond crystal kosher salt and people think that, oh, the, the diamond crystal is paying you to say this. It says, no, it's because right. I tested this recipe with diamond crystal and if you use another salt, you're going to have to convert it the, the main reason that, that chefs use kosher salt has nothing to do with the density or, or the flavor. It's because it's easy to pick up and it's exactly. easy to measure. Um, so the main reason to use kosher salt is because it's easier to sprinkle evenly over and, your food. And so
1: you use, like I do, a salt box or cellar, yes. right? Which is just a container of coarse salt near your stove probably, Exactly.
8: Right? Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a container with a little lid. But yeah, to me, that's um, one of the most essential pieces of kitchen gear because— First of all, it's a constant reminder that you should be seasoning your food as you go. Um, you know, salt, salt is essential for, for bringing out the flavors of other foods. It's essential for sort of taming bitterness. It brings out the sweetness of vegetables. Um, it brings out the meatiness of meat. Um, it's it's an essential ingredient in almost an, any cuisine. Um, so having that salt cellar there um, is just a, is sort of a way to mentally make sure that you're always thinking about the seasoning level in your food. And um, now
1: let's answer the question every listener wants to ask right now, which is what about Himalayan salt, Hawaiian sea salt, pink <laughs> salts, all the different colors? They're very expensive. Your answer is doesn't matter.
8: Uh, well, you know it, they they're nice. Um, they look nice. Um, they can add texture to your food. You definitely don't want to be cooking with those salts. You don't want to add them to soups or anything like that because all the, you know, again, all those qualities are going to go away. But you know, I, I do have a collection of salts at home, and I put them on the table when I'm eating, and and you know, and I like to do things that have textural contrast or color contrast. Um, like I think uh, like a black sea salt looks really nice against meat. Um, you know, Malden flakes look really nice, and and all those things um, obviously factor into how we enjoy our food. Um, so. You know, fancy sea salts—they're—they're they're definitely not essential. And if you're—and if you're eating with your eyes closed and you're just sitting in a dark room, they're probably not going to have that much of an effect. But nobody eats with their eyes closed. So now we've room. learned
1: that Kenji's not just a scientist; he's an artist. He listens to Beethoven while he eats, <laughs> and he has uh, some pink salts on the table just because it makes <laughs> him feel good. Kenji, uh, you're a man of, of of many interests. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. That was Jay Kenji Lopez-Alt. He's the author of The Food Lab, Better Home Cooking Through Science, also the chief culinary advisor for Serious Eats. Earlier in the show, I chatted with Kim Severson about the search for a lost strain of West African rice. Kim is a reporter for The New York Times, an institution that subscribes to the value of facts. Food is about many things, taste, history, culture, nourishment, and, of course, facts. The facts about food science, for example. Reporters like Saverson are finally reporting the little-known facts about culinary history. And once we have the facts, we can tell true stories about who we are and where we come from. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late, you can listen to our podcast on iTunes or wherever you download podcasts. Please remember to subscribe to the show. You'll automatically get every single show downloaded to your phone or tablet each week. If you want to learn more about Milk Street, please head to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, subscribe to our magazine, watch our TV show, or order our new cookbook. We'll be back next week, and thanks for listening.
9: Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Annie Sinzabaugh. Production assistant, Jackie Nowak. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugarts. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. And audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by 2 Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.